Hello, everybody. This is Kim Nicolaitis back with you on the 9th of July uh, here in uh, Waikiki. Taking up where we left off a couple weeks ago before the holidays. Um, And uh, so I thought it'd be appropriate for us to jump right back in where we left off, which was in the Gospel of Luke. We're going through the second chapter. We went completed uh, the prophecy with Simeon last time. So today we're going to take up starting off on uh, verse 36 and just see if we can finish right to the end of the uh, chapter. Get us into chapter, well, we probably won't go into chapter uh, three today, but we should finish chapter Chapter 2. So maybe we should just read through that. I'm going to be reading from the N, uh, not the NIV, the ESV, starting from uh, verse 30. Let's see, where where were we? Uh, Verse 36. Excuse me. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin. And then, as a widow, until she was 84, she did not depart from the the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. And when they had performed everything, talking about Mary and Joseph, according to the law, they returned to Galilee their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong and filled, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover, and when he was 12 years old, they went up according to the custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it. But supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, They were astonished, and his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Okay. So going back to verse 37, I think, we see uh, Luke adds a third witness of unimpeachable credentials, you might say, on the same occasion with that of Simeon. Um, on the temple grounds during the presentation of Jesus by his parents when he was some 40 days of age there. 
that was Anna the prophetess who was described by Luke as uh, arriving fortuitously, you might say, at this scene as Simeon was holding up the babe and giving his own prophecy, or at least uh, as arriving during that very hour. What we know of Anna was that she was also among those somewhat advanced in age. She was at least 84 years old. She apparently lived on the temple grounds and spent all of her time there in prayer and frequently fasting. And like Simeon, she, Simeon rather, she had been praying for the redemption of Israel. And she recognized that in this little baby Jesus, her prayers had been answered. And we don't know if Anna had any children of her own, only that she'd been married and that she had a husband who had died after only seven years of marriage. And since that time, Anna had remained single as a widow and was so in large measure due to her singular devotion to God. So she was among the very select remnant of who had been waiting for the Messiah to come. The text says that she bore witness to her revelation, that she had seen the Messiah to, to all who were waiting for that redemption of Israel, which would include all the other members of that very select group, which probably would mean those particular residents of Jerusalem and its environs who frequented the uh, temple grounds regularly and were pretty well known to each, to each other, I would imagine. Isn't it amazing when you think about it uh, that this was by far uh, the most important event ever to occur in the history of the entire world. And, you know, in the, in history, the history of the entire human race, that God Almighty would take upon himself the very nature of man and that he would assume the form of a helpless babe and, and that so very few uh, people living at that time would actually ever even be aware of it or informed about it. First of all, it was just one very small nation, the Jews, among all the nations of the world that God chose to be uh, the vehicle through whom he would make his appearance. Second, uh, it was just a very, very small coterie of people who would be included within that nation who would themselves take enough interest and have enough faith to actually believe the scriptures in the Old Testament were what they said they were. That is, they actually were the very words of God, and as such, they were absolutely irrevocable, and, and no matter whatever else may ever happen in the history of the world, whatever it was that these words said would happen would in fact be the only thing anyone could ever be absolutely certain would it indeed eventually come to pass since God holds not only the present, but also the future entirely in his hands. So what do we know about this devotee of Yahweh named Anna that makes her so special? Well, we know that she was a Jew. We know that she was born, or she was from the northern tribe of Asher, one of the ten tribes of Israel that split off from Judah after the reign of Solomon. In other words, she was from one of those families of the tribe of Asher, who, after that split, had actually migrated down from the north into the south, into the land of Judah after the split, because they wanted to live in accordance with the law of Moses, which they could no longer do had they remained within the kingdom of Israel up north. And that was because all the kings of the northern tribe of Israel were apostate. 
And because their kings were apostate, they encouraged their citizens to apostate. Apostatize, excuse me, and to worship their pagan idols, the idols of their neighbors, rather than to worship the God of their ancestors, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and Jacob. In fact, they made it very difficult for them to do that. God frequently sent them prophets, called them to repent, but the rulers of Israel never did. Repent. Therefore, the citizens of Israel from every single tribe who really wanted to worship Yahweh exclusively found it much easier to do so by simply moving, or by not so simply, actually moving down south to the region of Judah and abiding in the vicinity of Jerusalem where they would have access to the temple and where they were not forbidden from worshiping there. And although in the 8th century BC, the Assyrians carried off the northern tribes and redistributed them so that they were, for all intents and purposes, never heard from again. There were, at that time, members from every single tribe living in the environs of Jerusalem who remained there, at least until the Babylonian captivity. But that, you recall, only lasted 70 years or so, and then they were allowed to return to Jerusalem as well after that time. But not so with the northern tribes. It's not as if these 10 lost tribes ever wandered off somewhere else and showed up somewhere else as some other sort of people or some other nation. Some would suggest, such as England, for instance. The Israelites who were carried off by the Assyrians eventually became assimilated into whatever other pagan people they were relocated into, and whatever traces of their Jewish lineage they had were eventually lost. And the point I'm making here is uh, that the sacrifices that people have been willing to make in order for them to remain faithful to what they uh, believe is true about God, the God they worship, when that God happens to be the God of the Bible, have never been easy. It's not as if we Christians may have experienced what we've experienced here in the USA under the reign of the most a recent ruler or apostate, some would say, is really anything new in that regard, and we need to be prepared as well. In any case, for these kinds of possibilities. And I believe that we are living in the last times, which means that we can expect that, uh, you know, Satan recognizes his time is short and he will do whatever he can to persecute the people of God. Furthermore, Jesus said that the Bible, the Bible says that in the last time, many will turn away from the truth, and the hearts of many will turn cold. Jesus even questioned as to whether we'd find faith on earth when he returned. He said it would be like it was in the days of Noah. People were eating and drinking, giving their sons and daughters in marriage and going on their own merry ways, totally oblivious to the fact that the flood was coming and they were all carried away in the flood. That is what we can expect. Although that does not mean that Cannot also be there. Cannot also be a revival these last times as well, just before the Lord returns, and we should be praying for that and be ready for that. And I'm certainly hoping and praying that may be the case. Certainly, with the retirement of Kennedy from the bench uh, of the Supreme Court and the possibility of Trump putting someone there who will possibly be instrumental in overturning Roe versus Wade, that may have possibly been the greatest influence so far in the spiritual. Re- uh, malaise of our nation. 
So God may be preparing a way for just such a revival in our own lifetimes before he comes once again. And that would be or should be something we all desperately need and something to certainly pray for fervently. If Anna can be an example and an inspiration for us, this is what it would mean. She was living in a time which was just as dark as it is today, but she did not give up hope. She spent all of her time in prayer and fasting, and if only we could have a few Annas around today, then just maybe we would see the sort of revival that we so desperately need. Her name, by the way, in the Hebrew language means grace. It's another way of saying Hannah, which also means grace in Hebrew. And like Hannah of the Old Testament, she rejoiced to see this answer to her prayers, which had been a long time in coming. Okay, well, I'm sure there is more we could learn from Anna, but she completes the trinity of witness bearers in Luke's gospel to the fact that the infant Jesus was the long-awaited Messiah promised by the forefathers and prophets of old for the deliverance of Israel, and the other two being first initially Mary and Joseph and secondly Simeon. One other thing I suppose we could say about Anna was that she was a prophetess. This is something that uh, creates some discomfort with many in the church, uh, which they would say they find to be incongruous, to say the least, as that's supposedly not a role that is generally considered acceptable for a woman to play. And particularly, so in the Old Testament, actually, there were several women in the Old Testament that did play the role of prophetess, and by that, We do not mean someone that prophesies in the sense of predicting the future. The primary role of the prophet has always been simply one of speaking the word of God and of teaching the people of God, whether in the Old Testament or the New Testament. There were at least women in the Old Testament named as prophetesses. They would include Miriam, Moses, sister Deborah, Huldah, who lived in Jerusalem. And there was also the wife of Isaiah, the prophet. And also there was the false prophetess, Noadia, in the book of Nehemiah. In the New Testament, we have the daughters of Philip. According to our definition, we could also list Priscilla, Euodia, Sintuki, and depending upon how you want to define it, even possibly Junia, who was called an apostle by Paul. But many would say, because of Paul's prohibitions in his letters, Uh, for instance, to Timothy or the epistle to the Corinthians, uh, which seems to be against women teaching in the church. We cannot allow them to perform this function anymore, or at least not to teach over men. Well, the Advent Christian Church has taken a different view of the matter, and I tend to agree with them. Although for a while I did have some concerns about it. We know that Paul did have problems with certain women in a certain number of churches who were spreading old wives' tales and creating havoc for which, well, by itself may have been sufficient reason for him to have issued these uh, prohibitions, even to the extent of his reference to Eve's role in the fall. That, however, I do not believe should necessarily be taken as a universal restriction And the main reason I have for this is actually the prophecy of Joel, 
which was, by the way, quoted by Peter in his famous sermon in Acts 2, in which God promised in the last days to pour out his spirit upon all flesh, in which our sons and daughters would prophesy. Peter applied that prophecy of Joel to the outpouring of the spirit at Pentecost. And that is something which applies just as much to the church today as it did then. The other factor relevant to this argument is the uh, place which women held in the culture of Paul's day. They held a very subservient role. They were not considered generally to be reliable, even to the extent of having their testimony in a court of law deemed as credible or sufficiently credible to be included. And while the New Testament turned the tables on this cultural anomaly, for instance, giving women such roles to play in which they were, in fact, witness bearers and and unimpeachable witness bearers at that, such as Anna here, or of the women who were the first people to be eyewitnesses of the resurrection. Well, be that as it may, it doesn't mean that the culture is going to shift gears on this matter overnight. And that means that Paul's primary concern in his prohibition of having certain women from being in the position of leadership over men or of teaching publicly was with regard to the image that was being presented to the pagan public, which was still not ready to accept such a view. You see, Paul's primary concern had always to be the witness which the church bore to non-believers, those who lived in their midst. So when putting women up front would have been an affront to them, then why do it? How would that ever serve to win them over? Well, it would not. And so for that reason, and possibly for that reason alone, Paul could have issued this prohibition. But since today that's no longer an issue, then as I see it, neither should the possibility of women having significant teaching roles in the church, if God has so gifted them. That is notwithstanding the fact that Eve was deceived and granted that women on that account may be considered to be possibly more susceptible to certain temptations or deceptions. However, that may be. I think we should believe the Holy Spirit is just as capable of guarding the hearts and minds of women as he is of men. And therefore, if God has called them to preach, he is quite capable of equipping them to do so. Anyway, after these events in the temple, Luke, as we mentioned, does not take the time to record once again for us the other events transpiring in Jesus' early childhood, as does Matthew. But skipping over them says little more of the life of Christ as a child for the next 12 years, aside from the fact that Jesus grew as a normal boy would hopefully do in wisdom and strength and favor with God and man, and that God's favor was upon him. In other words, Jesus received no special treatment other than what you may very well expect to be the case with every single little boy and girl who ever came into this world. Now, were we to consider those events skipped over here, but as related in the Matthean account, it does, it does, not, uh, it does mention that Mary and Joseph did benefit from the oversight of angels. But that was only as was necessary to keep the child alive on account of the schemes of Satan directed at him. The next time we see Jesus in the Lucan account, he is 12 years old. 
that skips over those 10 or 12 years without adding anything more to our knowledge of his childhood experience than what we know from Matthew. Well, there are certain things that we may be able to glean from this as well. One is the respect which God provides for the privacy of the family of Joseph and Mary. It's just the way God is. He does not intrude upon our lives. He gives us the freedom to live them any way we chose to do so. And that's just the way he is. And in that sense, he's a, you would say he's a perfect gentleman. And while he knows, of course, we all want to know everything we can about Jesus' childhood, he values Mary and Joseph's privacy above our own curiosity in these matters. And we may certainly surmise that the childhood of Jesus was like that of other children in that he had several younger brothers and sisters. He had an earthly father who worked very hard to support them, taking jobs as they came along in the building industry that was thriving in the neighboring community of Sepphoris. And once Jesus was old enough to do so, he would surely accompany his dad in order to assist him in any way he could. That is, in any normal and natural way, never once, I'm sure, relied relying upon his supernatural power to supplement their needs, unless it was absolutely necessary. Since, from what we know of his use of those abilities, they were not something that he treated very lightly. We may assume that he was well aware of his unique qualities, then being as the only begotten son of God from a very early time in his life. But his earthly father died, perhaps when he was in his 20s, and that would have been something I'm certain that he could have prevented, but for whatever reason chose not to do so. I can only imagine that was because he was so reluctant to use any such power he had whenever the use of them would have been of some personal benefit to himself, which would have also not been available to the ordinary Tom, Dick, or Harry. So he experienced the tragic loss of his earthly dad at a relatively early age, or perhaps not so early in view of the level of poverty and hardship that was experienced during his upbringing. We do know, however, that there must have been certain times when the use of that supernatural power was manifest in his early life, at least to marry his mother, since she was aware of it, or at least she became aware of it later, as we discover in the Gospel of John at the wedding of Cana, when it was at her beckoning that Jesus turned the water into wine in order to serve the thirsty guests. Well, I guess we'll just have to wait till we get to heaven to find out any more about those years that are veiled in mystery to us for now and be content with what the scriptures choose to tell us about them. The very first event in which Jesus plays an active role as a child doesn't occur until he's 12. It's about the age in which, in Jewish tradition, it's customary to celebrate the passage of life from childhood to adulthood when a boy becomes a man, at least from the sense of being able to assume responsibility and being accountable for himself. Mary and Joseph, being devout Jews, would visit Jerusalem to celebrate the major annual festivals. Actually, three of those required a personal appearance at the temple of the males in the family to perform certain obligatory sacrifices. They would include the festival of tabernacles, I believe, of Pentecost, and as well as uh, Passover. 
And it was at the Passover separation, I'm sorry, the Passover celebration, which occurs in the spring of the year that Jesus made his first public appearance. He stayed behind after his parents had left to return to Nazareth. Now, if Jesus was just a normal, ordinary boy, one would be tempted to think of this act of Jesus as being one of insubordination to his parents, since he certainly would have been aware of the distress such behavior would have created in their hearts. And at least for the three days in which they were searching frantically, for him to no avail until they found him finally on the temple grounds. But after giving some thought, I concluded that uh, it was just the opposite. It was, in fact, an act of mercy on the part of Jesus towards his parents, especially his mother. So how can you can say something that appears so inconsiderate of his parents to be seen as an act of mercy? Well, to conclude this, uh, you know, you must realize that at the age of 12, Jesus himself already had come to such an awareness of his identity as the Son of God that he understood where he came from and what he was doing there. In other words, Jesus already knew that he had come to die on a cross or something similar in the place of the Passover lamb that had been up until then slaughtered each year in such multitudes for the sake of making uh, atoning sacrifice. Yes, at the age of Jesus, already 12, Jesus already saw himself as the sacrificial Passover lamb to eventually be sacrificed for the redemption of the world. And that realization of his would have also impressed upon him what the most immediate effect of having such to make such a personal sacrifice would certainly have upon his own family, especially his mother. He knew he had to prepare his mother to understand the nature of his mission. It was not going to be as she may have imagined. It was going to be anything but the glorious idea, as one might have been expected of Jesus, to exert the infinite power at his disposal in a victorious military triumph over all the visible foes who have been oppressing Israel for so long and once again establish their nation as a sovereign power under God alone. That, after all, was what most people had been expecting to see happen once the promised Messiah would have finally come. But Jesus had a much greater perception of the spiritual realities that had to be dealt with before that could ever happen, even at the tender age of 12. So Jesus had to prepare his parents for what lay ahead. They had to know that God had given him a very special mission and there was no way anyone or anything could ever stand in the way of that. Not as they may have been imagining or been taught, but in the very in very strict accordance with the terms and conditions that God had already laid out for him. In order for Jesus to prepare his parents for that eventuality, it was necessary to distance himself from them. He had to do that because Jesus was the only one qualified to take the place of the Passover. His earthly parents couldn't do it for him. He and he alone had to do it for them. If anything, the natural instincts of his parents would have been to shield their son from such a horrible fate. But to do so would only have hindered him in his God-given mission. So not only did Jesus have to prepare his mother to accept the harsh reality of that eventuality, he had to ensure that her own natural motherly instincts would not proved to be such a hindrance to his God-given mission. And to do that, it was necessary to begin the painful process of that separation between himself 
and his mother. Mary, you may recall, uh, we held up as a model believer. She was the first one really to know the divine identity of her son, and the process by which she came to a realization of that identity was one in which all true believers share to some degree. And that is why we so often read the words as we do that she pondered these things in her heart. In other words, she applied her brain to rationalize what was going on, and she asked herself a very important why questions. Remember, Mary was a woman of faith. She believed that God was in control, and therefore there was a plan, which she was just a part of. She wanted to understand as best she could why these things were happening to her and what they meant in light of what she already understood about God from scriptures. So I believe she understood there would be dark days ahead, which Jesus, in his mercy, even at this age of 12, was ready already preparing her to meet as best he could. By the way, the translations that I read here in the ESV or the KJV or other versions generally have Jesus replying to his mother's question as, why were you looking for me? Did you not know I had to be in my father's house? Or why were you looking for me? Did you not know I had to be about my father's business? Neither of those is precisely correct. Actually, though, I tend to favor the second version. A very strictly literal rendering is is kind of awkward. It, It would be more like, why were you looking for me? Did you not know I had to be about the things of my father? So it was a very terse reply, and it at first seems to be a bit unfeeling even perhaps cruel. But again, I believe it was all part of his plan uh, to, in mercy, prepare his mother for the much more cruel days that would lie ahead. We see that happening again and again in the way he responds to his mother. Okay, well, that about brings us to an end of this section. Thanks again for listening. And uh, if you have any questions or concerns or comments, uh, Feel free to to uh, feel free to uh, send them in. Let me just pray, Father. We thank you for this story about our Lord. We pray that, like Mary, we would treasure up all these things in our hearts, so that we would eventually too be pre- fully prepared to understand your perfect will for, and our own role in that will, so that uh, we may accomplish all that you have for us as we serve you. In this world, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, thanks again. So this is Kim Nicolaides signing off with Advent Christian Voices. 